DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, different. candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. Welcome to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations. And Evie, we've got Senator Steelejohn. We sure do. Very excited to have Senator Jordan Steelejohn on the podcast today. The man who needs no introduction, but hell, we're here, so let's do one anyway. Jordan was elected to the Senate at age 23, making him the youngest person in the Senate. I think the youngest to ever be elected to the Senate. He's the Green Senator for WA, a very well-known and passionate disability rights advocate He's a strong proponent of disability pride and disabled identity, and he hopes to create a legacy of accessibility that reflects the true diversity of Australian society. Welcome, Senator. Well, lovely to be with you, but the first thing I'll say is, please, there is no need to call me Senator anywhere else but in the chamber, and even there, I I feel very uncomfortable with it. So, Jordan is just fine, or if not Jordan, uh, that guy that sounds like Moss from the IT crowd is fine as well. I was about to do that joke, you just stole it. If I called called you Richard, would you be offended? Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, have you tried turning it on and off again, and all of the jokes, it's, it's it's a, we've even got a series of TikToks um, on my uh, TikTok channel about how I sound like Richard. So, yeah, it's a well-worn joke by now. (laughs) (laughs) Cannot be unheard. So, basically, in Growing Up Disabled in Australia, you tell the story Mm. about your your whole family comes out with you from the UK. And I wonder... That sense of community, you know, it's it's not it's not community, it's family, but it's family in the community. You brought a whole community with you, and has that affected your thinking about disability and the importance of community? Well, it certainly shaped uh, the way that that I grew up. Um, as I, as I say in the chapter, um, I had the the wonderful opportunity to to grow up surrounded by at least in my first couple of years, till I was about six or so by four generations of, uh, of, of knowledge and, and wisdom and, and life experience, um, which is really unusual, um, I have kind of come to understand. And I think what that gives you is, a, 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 first of all, a strong sense of grounding, uh, because the entirety of my wonderful family, and they really are the best bunch of humans, um, always drove home to me the, the baseline that, that uh, that I was, and you know, am they still kind of chuck it in every now and again when it's needed? Like a a good a good human um, that that uh, is you know deserving e- as a disabled person of uh, respect and support, um, and that I should be you know as as, as a disabled person supported to. Uh, to to live my life on my terms, um, you know, regardless of what society's expectations of a disabled person are. Um, And I think that grounding um, alongside the absolutely vital piece of just knowing that you're loved and that a bunch of people, you know, um, care about you, um, enables you to, to, to sit in spaces alongside people and, and and be present and okay alongside them too 
you know, there's an old 1960s book called that kind of started to explore some of these uh, topics called "I'm Okay, You're Okay," um, oh, yeah. and it's a it's a it's a thought process that I have always stuck to. Um, you know, tr trying to make sure that you always have enough within yourself so that you can you can have enough to be alongside others is absolutely um, central to the work that I now do. Um, and that that security, I think, comes from growing up surrounded by those wonderful people as as part of a broader um, community, too. But, yeah, I think it, I, I think it uh, definitely shaped um my outlook in, in disability um in as much as uh, i came to the realization that i was a disabled person um from a foundation of love and support um that enabled me then to make my own sense of disability as i made sense of myself if that if that makes sense it does, and, and it, it prompts a couple of questions that I've asked other guests before, but it, more appropriate in your situation than anybody. When did the personal become political for you, Jordan, in that sense of this is something I want to do differently through disability, but did it become political through Greens first or through disability first, or how, how did you find yourself as a Green senator who's, who's uh, a passionate disability advocate? Yeah, ex excellent question. Definitely, uh, I would say uh, through the Greens first. But really, if you if you want to to kind of understand my my political beginning, um, it all uh, a lot of it again tracks back to my experience as growing up in a multi generational household, right? Because what that means or what that meant for me is that you are surrounded by stories. So I was surrounded by stories of my mum's work as a, a social worker. She was a, a social worker in the UK for 20 years in the child protection uh, space. I was surrounded by the stories of my granddad, who was a, um, you know, grew up in the, born in the 1930s, worked in the UK uh, in the, you know, 40s, 50s and uh, 60s. So there was all the different changes in industrial relations, in the dynamics of the British economy. Thatcherism um, and that broader transition of of uh, the time when you could rely on starting a job doing one thing and ending it doing that thing, you know, in that period of time, as well as the Second World War and the introduction of the the um, National Health Service uh, in the UK that was the first time him or members of his family were able to get their teeth checked or get a pair of glasses. Um, there was the stories of my nan and my grandma who within their living memory was uh the a time before women had the right to vote you know um a time when women didn't have the legal right to control their own bodies or or to have custody of their children after a divorce like these huge social changes were encapsulated in that period of time and they are all inherently political changes that are the result of uh, communities coming together to campaign for that change, you know? So, so without it being partisan, I was surrounded by uh, political discourse, quite frankly. Um, and, and so it, it, to use the analogy, the balloon was being filled with, with, with um, 
flammable gases. Um, and uh, the spark then of the explosion, which kind of carried me to here, were first of all social justice issues um, around uh, refugees and our country's treatment or mistreatment of refugees um, and also climate change um, and a care about both of those issues um, led me to engage in you know more kind of uh, uh, openly political campaigns and, and conversations which actually initially led me to thinking I was going to uh, support the uh, the Labour Party. I was originally going to, you know, join Labour. Uh, my family had mostly voted Labour in uh, in the UK and hated Margaret Thatcher and the Tories. Um, mm. And so I was going to join the ALP until uh, the Gillard government announced something called the Malaysian Solution back in 2009, which was a proposal to trade uh send refugees that had come to australia including children to malaysia in return for taking uh taking refugees from malaysia and bringing them to australia and that kind of trading in human lives rather than centering vulnerable people who needed help was just something that i couldn't I couldn't put my name to um so i looked around for a political party a movement that was was speaking about that issue with the moral clarity that I felt then and feel now uh, is desperately needed in that debate. I found the Greens and and have never looked back. So it's a, it's a wonderful story, Jordan, and I've never really thought about family political discourse as a, almost as a dynasty that you've inherited that led you into politics. And, and let's jump forward to finding yourself a senator at the age of, of 23 and and, mm. a Greens, and a Greens senator. And it's like, you know, there must be a bit of a, a holy shit moment. And the Senate in particular, where you don't have an electorate, where you have a, you know, a national imprimatur to operate, here you are on this national stage, 23 years old. And where does the NDIS figure at that stage for you? And when do you become the champion? Mm. A champion, well, I might put you as a champion. <laughs> Um, I, I think I, I would say that there there were there there were several holy shit moments and uh, and there still are quite frankly I think if, if you're not um, feeling the uh, uh, you know feeling a deep sense of responsibility and don't at the middle of the night uh, wake up and wonder if you've made the right call you're not really cognizant of the of the responsibility that you hold, you know, um, yeah. and it, it, it was a it was a, a, a massive departure. I mean, I, I'd been I had been uh, involved in the Greens for I've been a member of the Greens um, for seven odd years before I was elected, and I'd never really planned to be. You know, there's there's some people that they would wake up, you know, and say, "This is the career I want to achieve. I want to." go into politics in the same way that one might go into law or, you know, and that, that, that was never me. I, I was and am extremely interested in politics because to me, politics is about people. It's about people and their passions and their drive for change and how we come together collectively to take political action, which is just another way of saying coming together to create a change, to be part of the change. And, and the humanity of that um, is something that I've always been 
really fired by, as well as the fact that I, I'm, I'm a um, absolutely insufferable extrovert who loves talking to people and like hearing people's stories and perspectives and, and you know political activism brings you into contact with this range of people that you would never um, otherwise meet and I love that it gives me energy um, and and joy to do that work so I was um, you know a volunteer a you know a candidate a couple of times but in you know in seats where the goal wasn't to win the goal was to build the greens campaign build the movement share the message uh with with people and i absolutely loved every minute of it and i did a number of federal and state elections and then uh, in 2017 uh, and 18 i decided to move from doing the, the kind of activism and, and role that I've been playing for about five or six years by then as both a candidate and an organiser to be an organiser and to support a team of women in my local area to run as candidates. And then I kind of play a campaign manager um, and support role. So I was doing that in the run up to the relevant election, which was 2017. And I was also uh, the... Uh, Green Senate candidate for the third uh, spot on the Senate ticket in the double dissolution election. Now, all of those words that I've just said are probably absolute nonsense to a lot of people, and that's okay. They were nonsense to me for a long time too. Uh, basically, all that means is that I was a candidate for the Greens in the Senate, um, and it was in an election where instead of being expected to win one senator, we were expected to win two because the threshold for winning a senator had been brought down by the nature of the election. So I was uh, selected to be in, a, in that third position, um, not expected to win, but I still took it very seriously, did a proper application and put my name kind of down knowing that, you know, there, there was a theoretical possibility if we got a massive amount of vote that I'd be elected, but my focus was actually these local campaigns and supporting this excellent crew um, of of younger women who had known for a very long time to 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 run as candidates. So that's what I was focused on, as well as being a uni student. And we ran the election, and that election was successful, and we elected the two people that we wanted to elect, and fantastic joy, happiness, all of the things. And then we found out that one of the people we'd elected was actually a New Zealander. And because he was a New Zealander, he was constitutionally unable um, to, uh, to be a MP. Um, and after a protracted high court case, which some people might remember as the citizenship scandal, um, about five years ago, where a bunch of MPs found out um, that they were actually dual citizens, and that didn't—that made they couldn't be MPs under the Constitution. The High Court ruled that this person had never been validly elected, and that therefore the election should be recounted as though this person wasn't the lead Senate candidate, but in fact the person in the second position was the lead Senate candidate, and the person in the third position, being me should be the second candidate, uh, recounted as though they were the second on the ticket, meaning that I was then catapulted uh, from uni uh, into the Senate. 
um, in in the course of a, a couple of weeks when that once that decision was made. So it was a huge departure from what I was expecting, and it was there were times of fear and disbelief and all of the emotions that you'd imagine. Um, I also really strongly felt that I had to consider really carefully what was suddenly th like three very important you know factors in my decision making processes from that point one was you know what what was best to do for the movement that i was part of for the greens um what was best to do by myself and my family because it impacts on your family in a huge way um and then what was best to do um by the community that I represented by virtue of who I was and who I was perceived to be as both the youngest person to be elected and the first disabled person or first person with a, with cerebral palsy anyway to, to be elected to the Senate. And having thought through those things carefully, kind of resolved that it uh, was the best thing to 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 go for it, basically, to, to take up the position and then to seek uh, to seek re-election. And I'm, I'm really... Um, thoroughly grateful to the the team of people that have worked with me uh, in the last you know four years or so to make that a success that it has achieved um, outcomes for for disabled people. It's wonderful. It is wonderful. I, I just wanted Evie's got a question she wants to ask and she's busting to ask it, but I have to ask one for a twenty three year old sitting in the Senate. Wouldn't it be mind numbingly boring a lot of the time? It's like. <laughs> <laughs> oh well the trick is um not not well well to 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 answer your question seriously because i could be flippant um but no to, to answer it seriously is it minorly boring uh no being being an mp and being in those spaces um is always a, a, an honor and a privilege and something that i take seriously yeah, yeah, being yeah, able yeah. to be in that space um if your question roland though is are the people uh, sometimes mind-numbingly boring um uh, <laughs> even that i can't say straight up they're boring because it's it's not as simple as that they're often very predictable um, and I think that you, we've got another question on our list that I'll expand on this a little bit more. But I think the thing that really gets to me, uh, that that really frustrates you, and if you ever feel drained, is when you want you watch a bunch of people that know better, that have been given a bunch of information by people with lived experience, by experts, um, uh, authentically provided to them to help inform their decision-making process and they don't take it on board because it's too politically inconvenient to do so and they in fact are, you know act in the opposite way to the advice they've been given and that really i find that extraordinarily frustrating but even in those moment moments um even in those moments even in those moments it's never boring uh, i would say though that uh question time uh is uh is terrible question time is terrible um and i you know i go in for for bits of it if it's actually if there are or if we suspect authentic questions will actually be asked and answered but most of the time uh, it, it is a parody of its name it's a space where uh questions are neither asked nor actually answered um so i mm. use that time to 
actually get some work done rather than watch <laughs> uh, people do like odd, untalented theatre. <laughs> I'd love to understand a bit, Jordan, the disconnect that I assume must have occurred between some of the expectations that you had of what working in the Senate would be like compared to the reality of it. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. So I think the biggest disconnect that I, the, the, the difference to what I expected was that, I don't know, I had a view that you'd go in there and what you'd discover is a bunch of different people, some with views that you agreed with, some with views that you, you know, disagreed with, and they'd kind of be, you know, a, not, not quite a battle of ideas, but the decisions would play out along the lines of whose values, you know, where did people align based on their values uh, and how did that inform their decision making? Um, and for the vast majority of that time, the time that I've been there, what I've learned is that that is, that is not actually how it works 99% of the time. Um, mm. People, obviously people in there, they got in there for a reason and they have a certain set of values and they have a certain set of principles. They're not, you know, completely hollow. Um, but those values, principles, and reasons are not the primary factors which drive their decision-making. The two factors that drive their decision-making, and in one way it's two sides of the same coin, uh, one is what, how will this benefit me or, or, or negatively impact on me based on my own personal goal of achieving more power slash remaining in the position as long as possible um and two uh, how will my decision influence the individuals uh that are able to have a flow-on impact on those same questions you know how long will i be here and oh, how much power will i have meaning that if some if a if a issue comes before the parliament and it you know people whatever their political party look at it and go that's gonna cost me uh whether it's right or wrong they will simply gravitate towards reducing the personal cost to them um by either making a decision that pleases factional players or political influencers uh, donors corporate donors to political parties um the corporations that they seek to work for after they've been in politics but the idea that principle and values are the two, you know, and the whole thing is a contest of ideas. It really isn't. It, it, it's it's mm. a bunch of people who, some of whom are nice human beings and some of whom are uh, terrible human beings and some of whom are, uh, you know, are, are just somewhere in the middle as most people are, right? Um, the primary thing driving them is self-interest. Um, and that's both... Uh, scary and deeply frustrating because I don't think the Australian public pay people a base salary of $200,000 a year to stick their thumb in the air, see which way the personal winds are blowing and then move in that direction. Um, and lots of people spend lots of time providing people with information that then they don't implement in their actions. But also there's an opportunity there because if the primary driver of the parliament is self-interest as defined by longevity in office and power in office, then there are incredible opportunities for the community when working together to place pressure upon the legislature and get outcomes. Because at the end of the day, 
MPs aren't going to fight you on values because they don't really care. Or if they do care, they don't care more than those two other dominant priorities, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're clearly not afraid to speak your mind. And, you know, in hearing you say this, it's not surprising. It's a bit disheartening. Is this just the nature of politics? Is it any different anywhere else? Oh, I, I mean, it, it's very different in other places. And I would say that um, I would say that what I've learned gives me as much hope as it does frustration. Um, it gives me hope for, for as I, I just said, that the... the um, if you assume that people are just act, acting in self-interest and won't fight you based on whether what you're proposing goes against their values, then as a community campaigner, your job is really simple. Your job is to go into the room with that legis legislator, that MP, and say, this stick that I've got here that I will whack you with if you don't do what this community is demanding is bigger than the stick you will be whacked with uh, if uh, you do concede to the community's demand by the people uh, currently trying to push you to go the other way, right? So you don't actually have to engage in a uh, values-based conversation with an MP. You can spend that time persuading the community, uh, persuading and activating your friends and family members to turn their 85% support for uh, you know, a common sense reform that somehow hasn't passed into political action to put pressure on an MP to get an outcome. And they will move, you know, uh, because that they want to keep their jobs and they want to perpetuate their own power. The other hopeful piece is that we can actually uh, take steps relatively easily to reorient MPs kind of inputs if you like those things which come to inform those two central pieces of decision making uh, you can do things like ban corporate donations to political parties which have been done um, in other states in Australia and in many other democracies around the world so just make it illegal for corporations to donate and also make it illegal for a politician to take up a job with a, a corporation that they've been regulating once they get out of power. Now you take those two steps and suddenly you can't rely on a corporate entity for a uh, amount of money for your election. So what do you really care about the, their opinions in relation to things anymore? Um, and if you can't get a job with them after you leave politics, well, there's definitely no point uh, advocating their position um, while you're in uh, politics because it won't serve you financially post your parliamentary um, time in office. And then you can also do basic things like force them to publish their diaries um, or uh, limit the amount of money that can be spent uh, in a political election or disclose the donations that are legal um, in real time to the electorate. So you can add these levers of transparency as well as a, as a national uh, anti-corruption commission, which the Greens have been pushing for for a decade, all of which come together in a kind of constellation of, of transparency um, that lets a bit of sunlight into the process um, while further, in, uh, further leveling the playing field um, so that community, authentic community campaigns are able to put pressure on their MPs and, and succeed. Mm, it makes a lot of sense. 
Uh, let's turn the conversation now to the NDIS and some of the things that you have been hearing from people. Absolutely. You've recently been talking about hearing from a growing number of people who've had their NDIS funding cut, and particularly people with autism and psychosocial disabilities. Mm. What's your take on what's happening with NDIS funding? So, so I think it's useful to go a bit back to the beginning, right? And it was one of the questions that, that Roland asked me, what was my perception of the announcement of the NDIS and how has that changed as an MP? Um, I was involved in the in the kind of back end of the Every Australian Counts campaign, went to, to some of the final big rallies and, and political engagements that was were run by the, the campaign. And as a West Australian, of course, there was a unique take on, on the NDIS because our state government um, put our disability uh, system forward as better than the NDIS and actually actively attempted to keep us out of the national scheme for a long time. So I got to know the debates pretty well. Um, and and I formed a view, I think, that I, that I still hold now, which is that the, the NDIS, if you boil it down to its core, uh, it is in recognizing, in trying to imbibe into the heart of a piece of national legislation, the truth that we as a as a community a community of disabled people um should be provided with the uh, financial supports and access to the services that we need to overcome the barriers that exist in our life um, and to achieve the goals that we set for ourselves in recognition that those barriers exist because of discrimination in our society because of ableism um you know ableism built the flight of stairs and forgot to to fit the lift not cerebral palsy you know so, social constructs in relation to uh, what is and is not acceptable behavior um were built by ableism not by the autistic person that is unable or unwilling to conform to them um, and that orientation of that legislation focused on providing individualized supports for those purposes provided by the collective pool of public funds. That is a, a radical idea. And in uh, approaching disability in that way, I, I believed then and I believe now that it is a social reform akin to the abolition of slavery to the civil rights movement or to women winning the right to vote to the movement for for women's equality in as much as uh, neither change in and of itself ended racism or ended misogyny or ended sexism but they were a foundation stone upon which was then able to be built structures to support and further full equality um, and it was a moment of collective societal concession to and re recognition of the reality of our shared humanity so the ndis in that way for me was was utterly transformational um and i knew in my heart that uh, neither side of politics would actually be capable of pulling the thing off in the way that it needed to be pulled off the liberal party and conservative doctrine fundamentally doesn't doesn't agree with that conception of, of you know of the idea that there are 
discriminatory barriers created by a collective, which it is then the collective's responsibility to take down and support the individual subject to them to recover and succeed. That's a, they, they fundamentally reject that conception of change. Um, and, and the ALP, even though they introduced the change, didn't fully understand, nor were they totally willing to hear, and they still aren't in many ways, the, the different structures of power that is needed to pull off a scheme like the NDIS. The, that it is not just enough for a government or state governments to come together and go, do you know what? It's really terrible that disabled people experience bad things. Let us, out of our the goodness of our hearts, create a social program to solve it. No, no, no. The power dynamic of the NDIS must be that it is a social right claimed by the affected community um, that is then to be utilized by the affected community and that changes uh, in relation to that program and what it looks like must be driven by that community and so when we say it's our ndis we mean it's ours as in it belongs to disabled people we crafted it we built it we advocated for it and we will wield it in the way that we need it to be wielded changed moved uh, you know expanded um and and the needs and uh, uh, and uh, thought processes um, of non-disabled people are not to be centered in those conversations it's disabled voices that are to be centered in that and and the alp still struggle with that concept and still struggle with the language of uh, you know severe and profound disabilities um and those kind of language sets that they bring which are still quite paternalistic. Um, so on one hand, you've got a political party that never believed it in it out of the blocks and another one that had implemented it, but didn't quite understand and still doesn't the full scope of what they actually agreed to do um, and are reflexively nervous about the broader implications of that wider social change. Um, so there was a lot of challenges to begin with. Um, and a lot of how we arrived here collectively with an NDIS that, while still in existence, is deeply failing too many uh, disabled people, particularly uh, neurodiverse uh, folks, uh, is that a lot of the decision-making has been driven by non-disabled people uh, to the exclusion of lived experience um, and that the cultural settings the cultural settings of the agency um, that from the minute it was kicked off in 2013 have been not not aligned with where it needed to be too much of it has been about gatekeeping of resources rather than meeting unmet need um, and from the very moment that the uh, NDIS was rebranded by the then Gillard government as um, disability care um, that the, the paternalistic view those moments we've been pushing back to defend the principle um, and I think that in that process autistic people particularly autistic kids um, have been used as the scapegoat um, and have been demonized by the NDIS and, and so of autistic uh, the parents of autistic kids as 
parents that just have naughty children that they don't want to discipline and then they've uh, bamboozled their GP into providing a diagnosis that isn't valid. You know, the, the, the whole conception of autistic people as a social construct that is, that is uh, being forced into a system it was never meant for um, and is now, uh, you know, causing financial havoc is utterly revolting. It's ableist. Um, and it is not acceptable to, to disabled people. Jordan, Jordan, we try to be apolitical at DSC, but in recent years, in particular with uh, the work of Minister Robert, the dirty work of Minister Robert, and the Morrison government's success in turning the NDIS into a welfare scheme and in the public perceiving it as something that's costing a lot of money that needs to be cut, that needs to be brought to heel. I just, is that a reasonable set of thoughts in the way you're talking about the social model of disability and mm. can we can we change that debate if you agree with with my my speculation oh absolutely we we can change the debate and in, in some ways the disabled community in rising to the collective defense of the ndis has stalled um the the conservative agenda and attempt to frame the, the scheme as, as financially unsustainable. There's a couple of things that need to be said when we when we break this down and un unpack it. One is, uh, you know, I think it's worthwhile stating um, what is the obvious, but I think many people, you know, need to hear it because there's been a hell of a lot of gaslighting of the disability community and a fair few number of straight up lies that have been told to us over the last few years that have uh, damaged the trust between the government and the, the disability community. First of all, um, uh, the the feeling, the perception that we have uh, that the government is trying to uh, trying to cut the NDIS, trying to push us off the NDIS, make it more difficult um, for for us to get what we need to take further national control of the scheme. Um, those feelings, those perceptions. Um, and not only feelings and perceptions, what we can see in our year-on-year -year plans when the buggers go down and down and down and our support hours go down and down and down. That is correct. They are trying to do that. And when you ask them and they say they are not doing that, uh, they are lying. And, that, well, you know, lying, misleading, however you want to frame it, they're not uh, being upfront and honest. The reality is that for the last three years, the Morrison government uh, has been attempting to fundamentally remake the NDIS um, in an image uh, of its own creation. Uh, the entire purpose of the tune review of Minister Roberts' appointment to the role um, was to uh, put two no-nonsense men that would just, you know, stop listening to those bleeding heart disabled people and those autistic mums and get these changes done to make this scheme sustainable. Um, that was their purpose and they have driven uh, single-mindedly at that goal for the last three years. Um, and that is why we have seen the disarray in the scheme that we have seen. It is why our community has been subjected so continually to campaign after campaign to kick us off or to cut it down as a concept. So that's the first thing I would say. What we have perceived is indeed 
the reality and uh, you know it is unacceptable given how many leaks the agency has been subject to speaking to the existence of cost-cutting task forces and uh, given statements of both ministers on the record about uh, the scheme that, that there is still a pretense of anything other than that. Um, secondly I would say that the whole idea that the NDIS is unsustainable is absolute nonsense absolute nonsense first of all uh, the modeling that they have put to us uh, over the course of, of years is non-transparent and uh, so some of some pretty shoddy uh, financial modeling done by individuals that have been in the agency for too long um, and have, have really like they, they need a massive changeover in personnel so they have not demonstrated a quality of modeling that I would trust or that I uh, think other disabled people should trust. Thirdly, a lot of the situation with the current financial state of the NDIS uh, in terms of its cost are a product of government decision making. When you decide to take $4.5 billion out of the scheme and put it back into general revenue, that means that there are $4.5 billion less dollars either to invest in the scheme if it runs over um, its budgeted envelope or indeed to invest to address some of the issues that disabled people are experiencing. And finally, and in some ways most critically, the government has focused entirely on the so-called cost side of the argument when talking mm. at all, uh, neglecting at all to talk about um, the economic activity created by the NDIS. And I, you know, I want to thank per capita particularly for for doing some excellent modelling work. And the only modelling work that has been done to this point in relation to the financial contribution of the NDIS, and they discovered in one year alone, it generated $52 billion worth of economic activity. For every $1 they put in, um, you got $2.50 out. So the idea that it's financially unsustainable is nonsense. But what is actually worse, in my view, is that this whole this social scheme, this scheme of social insurance, this manifestation of a societal commitment to the deconstruction of ableism, because that's what the NDIS, uh, NDIS is, that this entire revolutionary world-leading scheme is attempting to be reduced down to how much it costs on one side of a budget ledger or not. This is a scheme with a supreme moral imperative. And the way that we get it done, the resources that we make available to get that thing done are secondary to its achievement of that moral purpose in the same way that healthcare is actually a moral question. It's a question of whether we as a society feel comfortable living uh, in, a, in a community where people die because they can't get basic medical care. We don't feel comfortable with that and so we fund health care. Um, and I think that we as a community need to reject the economic frame, bring it back to the moral frame and demand that our federal government pull the very many levers that it has in its hands, whether that be taxing 
the corporations that don't pay any tax in this country, uh, increasing the rate of income tax for the rich, you know, you name it, there is so many things that the federal government can do to raise revenue if it needs to. Um, demand that, you know, being counted in the treasury, come up with a solution of how to get that done and keep ourselves focused on the moral imperative and achieving that moral outcome. Um, mm. and, and I would say as somebody that also holds the uh, peace and disarmament portfolio uh, for, for the Greens, so which is our equivalent of the defense portfolio, um, when you look at the nonchalance that the Defence Department has in relation to cost blowouts that, are, that, that range into the 50, 60 billion dollar space for the, for the submarine. Well, the nuclear submarine program that we just signed up to. Nobody has any idea how much that will cost. Probably uh, north of 150 billion by the time it's done, and it'll, we won't even get one until 2045. Nobody has stopped to say, well, is that financially sustainable? That seems a bit, <laughs> oh, oh, I don't know whether we can, you know, it's just not reasonable. Like, it is, it is a, a, a yardstick. Financial sustainability is a false political construct applied solely to social programs for the purpose of preventing people that are in need of support from getting that support. It is wrong uh, and it should be rejected wholeheartedly by disabled people in our community. Mm. This is, I mean, this is exactly the kind of debate we should be ha having about the NDIS and we're in an election year. The Greens are obviously very vocal about the NDIS as part of their election platform, but it's not really a topic that's getting much attention at the moment. Do you think the NDIS is going to get a Guernsey in the election debate? I, I, I mean, first of all, I think it's wonderful to hear somebody use the word Guernsey uh, in the 21st <laughs> century. I haven't heard that in ages. Um, but uh, I, I, think, I think that in some ways... Um, Disabled people have have forced the issue of the NDIS into the political space much more than was expected. Um, if you think back to the end of last year, in particular the middle of last year, the national uh, conversations around independent assessments were, you know, pretty pretty uh, central to a lot of conversations um, that were happening in the community. I think. Um, we did such an effective job collectively as a community in defeating that proposal, the government's gone a bit quiet, um, at least on its kind of public campaigning in this in this space. Um, my pro one of one of my priorities and the, the Greens priorities now is to make sure that the NDIS is centered in the election campaign um, and moving now as a community from defending that foundation stone to laying out our demands for what must be built on top of it. Um, and that's what I plan to do with the next kind of 90 days of the uh, federal election campaign. We're going to be holding online forums um, across the country, bringing disabled people together to talk about uh, some of the policy proposals that the Greens have put on the table for, for the NDIS and disability more broadly, um, but also critically, uh, uh, what do what do we as a community collectively want to see? Um, so that if the Greens end up in a, a balance of power position after the election, we're able to push Labour, uh, if they're elected, further and faster to actually address the issues that disabled people are facing right now. So, Jordan, we're reaching the, the end of our podcast. And afterwards, I was going to say to Evie, but I'll say it now instead. 
How lucky are we to get to talk to someone like Jordan for 45 minutes about issues that really matter? Yeah, very lucky, I would say. Oh, so I, 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 it's it. lucky for me to be asked. Thank you so much uh, <laughs> for, for wanting to, to talk about it. And I wanted to finish where we started with the, the personal and the political. So just to understand, you're coming to the end of your six-year term as senator and you're seeking re-election, correct? No, not quite. So I'm, I was elected in 2019 to, yeah. a, to a six-year term. So I'm not up again until 2024. But, and, you are, and you are thinking about seeking re-election at that stage. Oh, well, that, as, as they say, that will be a, a decision for, for, for the Greens members at that point in time. Um, but sitting where I am now, I, I am absolutely, um, you know, thrilled by every aspect of this job and hope to be able to continue to do it, definitely. So um, there is one question I wanted to ask that's along those lines. It's potentially six plus six years is 12 years from 23 years old. Sitting in the Senate, being in Canberra a lot, what's that going to do for your love life? <laughs> oh, oh, dear God in heaven. Um, well, do you know, I, it's, 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 it's a strange old one. It, in terms of family or social dynamics, it's rather like having a FIFO job um, in some ways. And, and, and in that way, it is a rather... Um, a dislocating uh, uh, job in in as much as you're you know you're there for a, three weeks and then you're away again and then you you know constantly you've got your mind absorbed in in work and uh, and you know these kind of very draining things so it it's I've found it to be um, it's certainly not pro prohibitive to build in social like healthy relationships with people um but it does make it more of a challenge um <laughs> most certainly it does but it, you know it also forces you to uh to think about what you're actually looking for in somebody to to share your space and to uh, you know, to do some self-work as well, which is absolutely critical to healthy relationships. People spend a long time wondering when Mr. or Mrs. or, you know, non-binary non specific, you know, perfect will come along without thinking about the work that you need to do on yourself to ensure that you are successfully able to share a space or be somebody else's person. You know, so it's not prohibitive, but it certainly makes you think you've got to, you, you've got to think it through more carefully and build relationships with people with intent, um, which I think is not a bad uh, thing to go by anyway, really. Thank you so much, Senator Jordan Steele-John, for giving us your time today. It's been an absolute delight. I can tell you, you've got my vote when you come back. Up <laughs> oh, dear. Well, thank you both. It's been, been wonderful to chat with you and uh, happy to come back anytime. Good on you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations, a podcast that's produced by Maya Thomas and made by DSE. You can subscribe wherever you're listening to your podcasts or at teamdsc.com.au slash podcast. And for more great NDIS analysis and news, yeah, also subscribe at our website, teamdsc.com.au. Thanks.